Aristotle, Socrates, Kant, Hume, Kierkegaard, all consumed with the same question. What makes right and wrong? How do we define what is morally good and what is morally bad? Is it subjective or objective, internal or external, divine or human? The biblical book of Judges is a chronicle of what happened when each individual determined right and wrong for himself, when each one did what was right in his own eyes, when morality was in the eye of the beholder. Good morning. Are we excited to continue our study in Judges? Good. I'm glad that you are. Bear with me just a few minutes. We'll do a little bit of family business, and then we'll jump back into Judges. Uh, most of you probably got this email already this week, but Kevin Chan is going to be transitioning off of staff at the end of October. Uh, some of you know that. Some of you, that's new information. But um, essentially, uh, this, first of all, this is Kevin's second tenure on staff here at Bayview Glen. He was on staff when I first came here in September of 2013, and then he transitioned into the Middle East, and he was a missionary in the Middle East for a couple of years in a, in a, a limited access country there. Came back to Bayview Glen, has been serving for the last two and a half years as our multiplication and mobilization pastor. And essentially uh, what has happened over the last you know, nine months to a year is that as we have kind of increasingly discovered what we need as a church and what that role is, that multiplication and mobilization pastor. And as Kevin has discovered his gifts and what he feel like, feels like God has called him to do, it, it seems that those two things have kind of diverged a little bit to us. And that's not just me, that's Kevin too. And we sat and worked that through and prayed that through and, and kind of came to the conclusion that the best thing for him to do was to uh, uh, finish his tenure here at Bayview Glen at the end of October. He got a couple of projects that he's working on. Our pastoral residency program is one. Another one of them is a secret. So I'm not going to disclose that to you right now. Secret project. You know what I'm talking about, Kevin? Okay, good. Um, so he's working on that and going to complete a couple of those, and then we'll transition off of staff at the end of October. Uh, when, when I first came to Baby Glen, I joked in the last service about this, but when I first came to Baby Glen, Kevin was my first friend. I mean, real friend. Uh, you know, you've first come to a church, and you're kind of getting to know the lay of the land and congregation and all that stuff. Kevin was my first friend. And, and I started in September. And then two months later, he told me he was moving to the Middle East. I'm like, why are you ditching me? This is the worst. This is, God is calling me. Okay, whatever. I, God is calling you to stay. You're my friend, you know. Um, and so, uh, anyway, Kevin's value here is not just his uh, professional value and his value as a pastor. Uh, but for me personally, it's his value as my friend. And, and he will remain that way uh, for sure. And so we will have an opportunity to thank Kevin and Grace, Karis, Karsten, uh, Christian, and Kayla uh, more appropriately at, towards the end of October as they kind of finish their time on staff here. But right now what we can do is just clap and thank Kevin for and appreciate him. Yep. I would encourage you to approach him personally, uh, Kevin and Grace, uh, over the next couple of weeks, and then 
um, also their kiddos and just thank them and we'll do more of that at the, at the end of October. Second thing is uh, we have an annual meeting here at our church. It's called the Annual Meeting of Ministry Partners. Lots of churches have members. We don't have members because what that sounds like is you know you pay your dues at a country club and somebody gives you a towel when you want it. That's kind of not what we do here. We have people who partner with us in ministry as we work together to um, uh, see that everyone everywhere could experience God's love and his created purpose through Jesus. And every year those ministry partners get together and we do a couple of things. We affirm our budget for the year. Uh, we vote elders uh, and, and vote to affirm elders for the year. We take a look at what's going to come in the coming year. And we take a look back over the last year and celebrate what God has done. That meeting is happening next Sunday evening. And all the documents that you need to prepare for that meeting are online at bayviewglen.org as well as a question submission form. Okay? So if you're a ministry partner here, you're really expected at that meeting. We'll provide coffee and some goodies and things like that. Um, if you are not a ministry partner, we'd love for you to be there too. I mean, we're transparent in all we do and our financial dealings and whatever and, and how we vote elders in, how this church makes decisions, all that stuff. You're more than welcome to be there with us as we worship, as we look back at the previous year, as we look forward to the coming year, vote in elders, all that good kind of stuff. So we would love to have you there. If you're not a ministry partner, if you are a ministry partner, you are expected to be there with bells on. So um, there's that. Okay, we good? Everybody's clear on those two things? Fantastic. Let's pray. God, thanks for the opportunity to worship this morning, to uh, come into your presence with singing and with praise. Uh, we sure love you, and we just want to follow you and um, be used by you and be molded and changed by you. Uh, so today, God, um, even in this study in the book of Judges, we offer kind of our whole heart and our whole attention and ask that you would uh, speak to us in the way that only you can. Thanks, God, for this time together and speak to us now. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. Okay, so if you're brand new with us, what we've been doing is studying um, the book of Judges. So here's what's going on in the book of Judges. Old Testament, nation of Israel is enslaved in Egypt. God sends a deliverer for them named Moses. They come out of Egypt and they start a journey towards the promised land where they were going to settle and become God's people. It was supposed to be about two weeks. It took them 40 years because they were wandering around in the desert for like 40 years because they did wrong stuff and they just kind of couldn't figure themselves out. By the time they start to uh, inhabit the promised land, um, in those days when they began to inhabit that promised land, there was no king in Israel. And the, the author of Judges is not just talking about a physical, like, human king. He, he's also, or, or she is also talking about God as king. People didn't recognize that God was in control, that God decided right and wrong, that God was the one that was directing all their steps, that God was the one that they needed to be paying attention to. And so what happened is everybody did what was right in his own eyes. So everybody got to decide for themselves, him or herself, what was right and wrong, good and bad. In other words, that's why we call the series this, that morality was in the eye of the beholder. And so what, what happened was complete chaos in the nation of Israel, complete chaos in, God, in, the, in, kind of the, in God's people. And what happened is they enter into what we're calling the cycle of disobedience or the cycle of oppression. So here's what happens. Israel begins by serving the Lord. They're serving God. They're worshiping God, all that stuff. And then they sin. And when they sin, they don't just sin like, you know, they punch somebody in the face, or they parked in a handicapped spot on the way over here or something like that. They literally 
literally began to worship other gods, namely Baals and Asheroth, which is um, the gods of fertility, like child sacrifice, ritual prostitution. I mean, nasty, nasty stuff. And when they did that, those gods and their representatives enslaved them because of Yahweh. So Yahweh sent someone to enslave them and oppress them because they were worshiping these other wacko gods. And what we learned last week is this, that a false god will always enslave you. Every single time, without question, every time, if you're worshiping something, uh, whether it's Baals or Asheroth or a carved image, or you're worshiping money, or you're worshiping sex, or you're worshiping your job, or you're worshiping another person, or you're worshiping a relationship, or you're worshiping the idea of being married, if that's what you think about, talk about, look to, spend your money on, eventually that notion, that person, that idea, that whatever is going to enslave you. This is what happens when people are addicted to things. That's what happens when they're a workaholic. This is what happens. It's because they worshiped a false god, and eventually they are ensnared by that and captivated by that. This is exactly what happened in the nation of Israel 3,500 years ago. So the nation of Israel at that time, they would cry out to God and they would say, next slide, they would say, oh God, we, we're, in, we're in a pickle here. We're in trouble. And God would raise up a judge for them. He did this 12 different times over the course of about 430 years. He would raise up a judge, six major judges, six minor judges. The only distinction there is the six major judges has long, have long narratives. Six minor judges have shorter narratives. And those judges would would redeem them from this oppressor that was enslaving them, deliver them from the oppressor, and then Israel would serve God again, and here they go back into the cycle one more time. And so we come to now Judges chapter 4 and 5 when we're going to see this cycle happen again. And Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5 each talk about the very same circumstance or situation. I don't know if you've ever read your Bible before. You're reading your Bible and you're like, I'm pretty sure I just read this like the chapter before. This is exactly what happens in Judges chapter 4 and 5, except Judges 4 is the narrative of what happened. This is the prose. This is, mm. It was this person and that person, and they did this and that, and this person said this and all that stuff. Okay. Then Judges 5 is the song about Judges 4. Does that make sense? So Judges 4 is what happened, and then Judges 5 is the song about what happened. So I'm not a song guy. We're going to stay away from Judges 5, all right? We're going to help, we're going to use this a little bit to like fill in some gaps, help us understand a little bit. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in Judges chapter 4. That's the narrative to help us understand what happened in the judgeship of a woman named Deborah. Before we get to Judges chapter 4, I want to introduce you to the four main characters in the story. Get the lay of the land a little bit because that will help you as we begin to read it together. The first is a cat named Jabin. And Jabin, don't you like, isn't it weird when people just like, like this should be Jason, right? Not Jabin. It's like, the, it's like those new names that people are naming their kids. Amberly, Jimothy. What is that? It's not a name, Jabin. You know, it's funny, it's, it's actually not a name, it's not a proper name, it just means king, Caesar, czar, something like that. And he's a czar of a place called Hazor, which is in the land of Canaan. And Jabin has a military commander named Sisera. Sisera is a bad dude, we're going to learn about this just a little bit more in a minute, but he is wicked to the core. He's a nasty, nasty, nasty individual. And he is Jabin, the king of Hazor's uh, military commander or general. 
Then God raises up a judge, a woman named Deborah. This is our only female judge in the whole book of Judges. And she begins to rule over the nation of Israel. We'll talk about that just a little bit more. And she calls a man named Barak, not the one who used to be president. That's a different Barak. It's been a long, longer time than that ago, okay? Barak, to, to go and attack Jabin and Sisera, this, these oppressors that are oppressing the nation of Israel. We're about to read about it, okay, in Judges chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, please open them up. Judges chapter 4. Morning, Jack. How are you, bud? Maya, good to see you, buddy. Nice to see you. Everybody's doing okay. Philippe and Anna, welcome back. Yeah, you have a good time? Good. Good. Sorry, we're just having personal conversations quickly while everybody flips to find Judges chapter 4, if that's okay with everybody. Judges chapter 4, we know what we're about to get into. We know the characters that we're going to meet, and here's what happens in Judges chapter 4. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Namely, they began to worship other gods, the gods of fertility. They were doing some nasty stuff. And now watch, when is it that that happened? After Ehud died, now watch this, Ehud was the judge we just read about in Judges chapter 3 that rescued Israel from a very similar oppressor. Israel just got themselves into predicament again. They began to worship a false god. That false god enslaved them. Ehud snuck into the throne room of a fat king, stabbed him in the gut, you know, and all his feces came out. This is actually what happens in Judges chapter 3. Go back and read it for yourself if you missed last week. It's really fascinating. And the minute that Ehud dies, everybody just abandons God again. Can you believe this? Now, here's the thing. I'll just be straight with you. I'm coming in a little bit hot this morning. I was going to start with a joke. I didn't start with a joke because I'm coming in a little hot. Because here's the thing. We got the exact same problem now, 3,500 years later in 2019. Exact same problem. We have a faith, so many of us, that is conditional upon something. It's conditional upon a person. It's conditional upon a circumstance. It's conditional upon how good a time we have here on a Sunday morning. And here's what God wants us to know from Judges chapter 4, that conditional faith is no faith at all. If your faith is built upon one person and one person only, and if that person was to exit your life, your faith is going to fall apart. It's no faith at all. It's exactly what happened in the nation of Israel. Everybody's following God. Everybody's excited about what God's doing. The minute Ehud dies, everybody just abandons God. Totally conditional upon one person. And some of you are like that. You have a faith that is conditional upon your mama or your daddy. Some of you have a faith. Check this out. I'm just going to be straight with you this morning. You have a faith, and not just a faith like I believe God, like an active living faith. I'm going to be an active participating Christian as long as Lucas is at Bayview Glen. You know how I know that? Because you tell me that. And people come up to me afterwards. I, I just, I love it so much here. And if you leave, I'm leaving. You know how much pressure that is for me? That's a lot of pressure. So I'm going to close my eyes. How many of you would say, I'm leaving Bayview Glen if Lucas left? Don't raise your hand high just a little bit like this, okay? I know there's like at least a couple of you. Your faith is conditional upon me. You know what? Check this out. This is, this is wild to me. Watch this. This is wild. If I left Bayview Glen, I wouldn't leave Bayview Glen. Here's what I mean by that. If I was to get a job somewhere else in Toronto, let's, let's pick like a realistic one like if I was playing for the Blue Jays. Like if I went and played for the Blue Jays and stayed in Toronto, I would stay here even if I wasn't working here. You know why? Because I'm an active participant in this community of faith. 
My faith is not conditional upon who's up here on platform. I have a life group I'm connected to. I serve here. I volunteer here. I'm connected here. And so many of you, you have one string that attaches you to this community of faith. And it's like, oh, well, the preaching's good. It's not that good. Let's just start there. Number one. Number two, that's not enough strings. You're not living the full and robust life that God has called you to. And your faith is conditional upon, well, as long as my life is good, as long as, as, long as the, the worship is good, the worship was really good today. It really drew me in. I just really, the worship was really good. You know what's wild? We weren't doing it for you. That's not what this is for. Like you, you let us know when you want to start church. Whenever you get here, we'll start. We're just gonna we're gonna change the name of this place. It's not gonna be Baby Glen anymore. It's gonna be called You Church. This is all about you. You just you just tell us what programs you want us to run. You tell us what you want to do with the budget. You 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 just you make all those decisions. You understand the sarcasm in my voice, don't you? I hope so. Because you're living a life of conditional faith. As long as I get to do this, as long as I get to say this, as long as it doesn't impact the hobbies that I'm engaged in, as long as this person is involved, as long as it doesn't change my life all that much, as long as we're going to see another person just give us exact same kind of thing here in about 10 verses, as long as this happens, I'm okay doing what God asked me to do. As long as this doesn't happen, I'm okay doing what God, that is conditional faith and friends, it is no faith at all. Did I tell you I come in hot this morning? Are you having fun so far? I am. <laughs> it's great for me. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 2. And the Lord and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, right? He brings this oppressor, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. We meet character number two, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. That's going to make a difference here in a minute. It doesn't make a lot of difference now. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help because Sisera had 900 chariots of iron. He had this technology that Israel did not have yet, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Cruelly. He's nasty. He's, he's not a good man. Okay, we're going to see how nasty he is here in a minute. So, part two of the story. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgments. Okay, okay go back one. She's not judging Israel like, you know, the, like, like, the, like, the, like the 13-year-old girls judge each other, right? Like, that's like... That shirt does not fit right. Like, not that kind of judgy, right? That's not what we're talking about. Deborah would help facilitate conversations in Israel, and all of the nation of Israel recognized her as a judge. So what they would do is if there was a dispute in Israel, they would come to Deborah, and she was at this particular place, and they would say, okay, Deborah, help us understand. He said this, she said this, he said that, she said that. We're kind of at odds with one another. Help us work that out. And Deborah was like Judge Judy. You know, wham, she'd bring the gavel down. She'd help them work through that stuff, and everybody recognized her as a leader in Israel. And so because she was the leader in Israel, what happened? 
happened is she sent for uh, Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, which is to the north of where she is, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Natali and the people of Zebulun. Which is interesting to me because the way she phrases this thing. She doesn't say, has God commanded you? And she doesn't say, God has commanded you. She goes, has not God commanded you? He's told you go do this, so go do this. And then she says, and I will draw out Sisera. And when she's talking, uh, when she's saying this to Barak, she's not speaking for herself. She's not saying, I, Deborah, will draw out Sisera. She's speaking on behalf of Yahweh. So she's saying, I, Yahweh, Yahweh will draw out Sisera for you, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kashan with his chariots and his troop. And I will give him into your hand. So Yahweh is going to do this for you so that we're no longer oppressed. But Barak says to her, if you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I'm not going to go. You see this word here, if? I got a condition, don't I? God has commanded you, and Barak would have recognized that in Deborah, because all of Israel recognized that Deborah was a prophet, and she spoke on behalf of God. So when she said, God has commanded you to do this, when Barak comes back and tries to negotiate with her, this is not a good idea. Barak has a condition, doesn't he? I'll go if you go with me, but if you don't go, I ain't going. Once again, conditional faith is no faith at all. Barak should have said, if that's what God wants, that's what God gets. I'm on my way. That's not what he says. He goes, I, I'd like for you to go. If you go, I'll go. If you don't go, not going to go. So Deborah says to him, look, I'll go with you, but the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. You're not going to get any attention or accolades for this. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. I'm so happy. <laughs> for a whole bunch of reasons. Number one, Sisera is an awful human being. And the worst thing that could possibly happen to you 3,500 years ago was to get your rear end kicked in a military battle by a girl. Now, it's a little bit similar now because if you had a son and he was 13 years old and he came home and like, I got in a fight at school. It's like, what happened? Like, I just got my butt kicked. By whom? Susie. Like, oh, come on, man. Like, it's worse 3,500 years ago, all right? It's worse. It's even worse. It's like super dishonoring. And so God says, I'm going to give Sisera over into the hands of a woman. Our assumption is, who's the woman that's going to have the victory? Deborah, right? It's the only woman we know in the text so far. But that's not going to be the case. Watch this. It's awesome. Then Deborah arose. Uncle, I haven't finished it. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Next slide. And Barak called out Zebulun and Natali. These are the two tribes of Israel. And he calls them out to Kadesh. This is the city. And 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. So now you've got Barak, Deborah, and 10,000 men. Now, here's the thing. Verse 11 is like random what in the world is happening? It, it's about to share, the text is about to share with us something that we're like, what? You ever, you ever know people that tell a joke and they get like three quarters of the way through the joke and they go, oh my gosh, I forgot to tell you like this really important part about the joke. 
You know those kind of people? And they get really excited about the joke and they're like, oh my gosh, I forgot to tell you, the pig only has three legs. You know what I mean? It's like, well, that's kind of critical in the joke. This is a little bit what verse 11 feels like. Watch, this comes out of nowhere. Now Heber, the Kenite, the who? The what? Like this was about Barak and Deborah and and Jabin and Sisera, Heber the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, great name, Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and pitched his tent as far away as the Oak and Zahananim, which is near Kadesh. The who? The what? And then it just jumps back into the story. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, just right back into the text. It's like, who put verse 11 in there? We're going to find out here in a minute. It's going to be radical. Watch this. It's unbelievable. Just in your head, mark it. We'll come back. Okay. Sisera was told by a spy that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera called all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron with the men who were with them from Harosheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, right, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera in your hand. So Barak and Deborah and, and, and Sisera and his army start to come together. And, and he, she says, this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with the 10,000 men following. And the Lord routed Sisera. Love how the author of Judges phrases this here, the word choice here. Barak did not rout Sisera, do you understand? The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. So now these chariots are out of the picture. Sisera is fleeing on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagayim. And the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword and not a man was left. Here's my question. This is a relatively small army of about 10,000 men that have just been put together. And they defeat a high-ranking, high-octane general with 900 chariots how how well this is where our map and judges chapter 5 really will help us out so look up here on the screen this is the best map I could find I know it's not like greatest and it's a little tough to see but stick with me Deborah is down here between Bethel and Ramah under her little palm tree and she summons Barak who's up here at Kadesh you remember this up here at Kadesh. So Barak comes down and meets with her. She goes, you should go kick that guy's behind. And he goes, well, if you go, I'll go. But if you don't go, I'm not going to go. So she goes, all right, I'll go. They go. They go up here, and they're at Mount Tabor. Remember? Sisera hears that they're at Mount Tabor. Sisera is at Harosheth Hagoyim. You remember that word? Remember that? There's where Sisera is. And so they, the, the army of Sisera begins to pursue the army of Deborah and Barak at Mount Tabor. And they come down off Mount Tabor and they meet in this plain right here. And there's a battle right here in this plain. So here's what I want you to know about this. This is, this is, this is free for nothing this morning. Is that in this situation, God is in total and complete control. He is in total and complete control. You see, because Deborah thinks she's just going along with Barak. And Barak thinks he's kind of doing what God wants him to do. He's just up on Mount Tabor doing his thing. And Sisera thinks, well, I'm going to come down and meet him and just whip him and whip his army and completely obliterate them because I have 900 chariots. And all the while, Yahweh knows exactly what he's doing. 
Because when Sisera came down from the west and Barak and his army came down from the east, where they meet is in the river Kishon. You remember the text telling us that, the river Kishon? The river Kishon didn't run straight all the time. There was a lot of washes and a lot of flash flooding that ran through the river Kishon. And so when they met in that battle, Judges chapter 5 tells us that, next slide, the torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. All of a sudden, here they are in this battle. There's flash flooding through Kishon. Judges chapter 5 tells us that those 900 chariots are in that ravine and they get stuck in the muck and mire and they're rendered completely obsolete. Why? Because God is in total and complete control. Everybody thinks that they're in control. And all the while, God is orchestrating each little piece of this story to do exactly what it is he wants to do. Do you know that that that's true about your life too? He's in total and complete control. Anything that you like feel that you're in control of, just a total illusion. It's a mirage. Yahweh is in control. He always has been. He always will be. Can I tell you one other way he's in control in this passage? Not just having those two armies meet at the river Kishon where you've got flash flooding, renders the chariots, uh, renders the chariots obsolete, renders, renders them uh, inoperable, and so that army gets their rear end kicked. They get completely sacked. Here's another way he's in control. Remember our obscure verse from a minute ago? You remember the obscure one? Watch this. Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, done his own little thing. The descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and has pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. But Sisera fled away on the foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Where's Jael going? To where Heber the Kenite lives, right? There, there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. So Jabin and Sisera have this peace treaty with Heber the Kenite. And so, and so Sisera, once his chariots are swamped in the river, gets out on foot and runs to the tent of Jael where he knows that there's peace because Jael is married to Heber the Kenite. Well, where does Heber the Kenite live? Next slide. He lives as far away as the Okanzaanim, which is near Kadesh. Next slide. Here's the deal. When these two armies meet, the chariots get swamped in this river Kishon. Sisera's like, oh man, I got to run somewhere. I can't run south because that means I would run back into the river. I can't run east because that means I would run directly into this army that's pursuing me. I can't run north because there's mountains there. I'll run west. So he runs west. He runs into the river Kishon here, runs back up to the north and right into the hands of Jael, who's married to Heber the Kenite. And he thinks to himself, we're all good. We're we're at peace with these guys. They're going to open their doors to me, the doors of their tent, right? They're going to show hospitality to me, which happens for a time. And then Jael kills him. Because he's a bad, bad dude, and he needed to meet justice. And all the while, Sisera thinks that he is in control. He's deciding to run west because he wants to run to the home of an ally. But God wants to remind us that God is in complete control. 
He can't run east because there's an army there. He can't run south because there's a river there. He can't run north because there's mountains there. So he runs towards an ally, and that ally flips. Watch this. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. So he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me water tonight which I have here, for I am thirsty. So she opened his skin of milk and she gave him a drink and covered him. Watch this. What does he ask for? Water. What does he get? Milk. So she's one-upping this hospitality, making sure you're good. I'll take care of you, all right? And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent and if anyone comes and asks you if anyone is here, you say no. So who is this anyone that he's talking about, this any man? Barak, right? He knows he's being pursued by Barak. He's left his chariots behind. Barak is pursuing him. So if any man, namely Barak, comes to the door and asks you, is anyone here? You say no, which to me doesn't seem like it's going to work. You know what I mean? Like I could just imagine Barak coming to the door and go, is anyone here? And she goes, no. And he goes, Okay, ship shape, see you later. Like that doesn't seem like it's going to work, but apparently Sisera thinks it's going to work. Next slide. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg. <laughs> and she took a hammer. This is so good. Then she went softly to him, tiptoe, and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And just in case you're wondering, he died. This, this one thing is, you know, and, and we'll get to the big thing here in a minute, but this is another one, free for nothing this morning, is that God delights in maximizing the weak in order to minimize the strong. He always has. He uses a woman, not just a woman, a non-Israelite woman. She's not from one of the tribes. She's married to Heber, the Kenite. She's not even from the tribe of Israel. She's a Gentile woman. And he raises her up and uses her to execute a really, really nasty individual. He loves, God loves that maximizing the weak in order to minimize the strong. And Barak, next slide, and, and Barak, as he was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Now here's the second thing that happens. Not only does Jael kill this general that needed to meet his fate not only that but instead of Barak getting the credit for it who gets the credit Jael so Jael's taken the honor of this man who's lying dead in her tent he's she's also taken the honor of Barak this is the prophet uh, prophecy of Deborah earlier on in the passage that God will turn Sisera over into the hands of a woman and it's not even me it's this other woman Jael who's not even a member of the nation of Israel Again, God delights. He thinks it's funny to maximize the weak in order to minimize the strong. It brings a smile to his face because he gets all the glory, not you. This is so cool. Man, if you don't think this is cool, I don't know what to tell you. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, here's the deal. What is it that we're going to learn from Judges chapter 4 and 5 in this narrative? Okay, One of the first things that I want you to know is that 
is that the author of Judges, specifically the Song of Deborah and Barak in chapter 5, draw a distinction and a contrast between Jael and Israel. Because what happens is is, um, Barak, this general that Deborah commissioned, goes to the tribes of Israel and he says, come with me, let's go destroy Jabin, king of Canaan. Let's go destroy this horrible man, Sisera. Again, we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's go do that. And only two tribes respond, the other ten do not. So in Judges chapter 5, in the song of Barak and Deborah, watch what happens. It says, among the tribes of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. But why did you sit still, Reuben, among the sheepfolds? To hear the whistling of the flocks. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. In other words, Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, under the nation of Israel, thought about it. They sat on their duff. Gilead stayed behind in the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? These are all the tribes of Israel. Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. They didn't do anything. There was another city called Moroz that was really close to the river Kishon, really close to the battle. And they could have engaged to subdue Sisera, this horrible, evil man, this cruel man and his army, but Moroz did not do so. So uh, the Bible says, curse Moroz. Next slide says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord Almighty. Look, it's not even about them doing something bad. It's that they didn't do anything at all. Do you understand? Like these guys weren't doing anything bad. They weren't like committing sin they were just failing to engage in what God had called them to do and pressing back against an oppressive enemy this is why in Judges chapter 5 Deborah writes this she says most blessed of women be Jael why because she took action the wife of Heber the Kenite the tent dwelling woman most blessed Mm. now you're thinking to yourself okay I get that there's a contrast. The nation of Israel didn't do squat, uh, 10 tribes in particular. Jael stepped out in faith, took a risk, killed a man. But she still killed a man. So what am I supposed to think about that? Well, let's just get to know Sisera a little bit, shall we? Because at the end of Judges chapter 5, there's this picture of Sisera's mother waiting for him to come home from battle. And she starts going, why is he late? Well, he's late because there's a tent peg in his dome. But she starts to hypothesize about why he might be late. Well, he's probably late because it takes a lot of time to gather up all the spoils of war. It takes a lot of time to get all this nice clothing. And it takes a lot of time because maybe you're going to rape a girl or two. Watch. This is what she says. She says, next slide. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. This is kind of what Sisera is down with. And you know what's interesting is that in the ESV it's translated a womb or two. But in the original language what she says is it's gonna t- they're going to take a little, a little extra time because they've got to rape a couple babes, right? Broads. That's the term she uses. A derogatory term. She could have used the term for woman or girl. She does not. This is what Sisera, this is how Sisera sees women as objects to plunder and to use for whatever he thinks is good or okay. So here's the deal. When we start thinking about Jael killing Sisera, 
a commentator named Dale, Dale Ralph Davis actually wrote this. He said, of course, uh, I could be missing something, but it seems to me that the Bible itself is pro-Jael. Frankly, that does not bother me at all. Sisera, who severely oppressed Israel and probably enjoyed raping captive Israelite girls, which we just learned in chapter 5, was not exactly Mr. Clean. And watch what Dale Ralph Davis says to you and me. Frankly, it shouldn't bother you either. Here's the reason why I think it bothers us is because in our Western mindset, right, everybody's got feelings and nobody wants to do anything with violence. We think to ourselves, you know, Jael... You got a hammer in your hand and a big tent peg, and I think I know what you're going to do with it. So I would ask yourself, WWJD? I don't think Jay would do that. I don't. Right? And we grew up in a Western world, many of us, not all of us, many of us grew up in a Western world where we are not oppressed by cruel leaders. But if you grew up under the regime of Pol Pot, or Ceausescu, or Hitler, or Stalin, or Saddam. I think you're a little bit more pro-Jael, don't you think? A little bit more okay with this. Jael taking it into her, her own hands and taking a risk here and putting an end to the oppression. So here's what we learn really quickly, that early on in the text, it feels like this story is about Deborah and Barak, Next slide, and it feels like it's about Jabin and Sisera. The reality is it's more about Jael and Israel. It's more to demonstrate that active faith is greater than inactive faith and that sins of omission, simply just not showing up for something, is just as bad as sins of commission, so much so that God would even curse this city for not showing up. It's not like they did, it's not like they did something bad. It's just they failed to do the good that they knew they needed to do. And Jael stepped into this. Now listen, this, the book of Judges, is not one of those prescriptive books. It's more descriptive. Does everyone understand what I mean by that? What the book of Judges is doing is describing actual events. It's not prescribing that you go do this today. Right? So don't walk out of here and go, where can I get a tent peg? I got a couple of people in my life, right? Could really use it. Like, that's not what the Bible is saying. What the Bible is saying here is that sideline faith is no faith at all. Standing by and just watching someone else step out in faith. Standing by and letting God's kingdom just unfold without participating. Standing by and warming a seat here every week because the worship is good and the preaching is good. And we usually get out of here in time. That is not the call of Christ. Like, I don't usually get as harsh on you as I'm going to get today. I'm usually, I, think, I think I'm usually a little more gracious than that. But listen, if you are only experiencing this and this only as your Christian life, you show up here on a Sunday and you get some preaching and some worship, you're just not experiencing it at all. Like, like I said, if I went to play for the Blue Jays, don't laugh. I'm going to play for the Blue Jays one day, I swear. 
I would stay here. You know why? Because this is my home, because I've plugged in here, because I have a life group here, because I serve and volunteer here. And some of you have this like one string that keeps you here, and that's not good. It's not healthy. You're not doing anything with your faith. You know full well, like just as Deborah said to Barak, I would say to you, has God not commanded you? To be an active sharer of your faith? Has God not commanded you to volunteer and serve here and serve a child? Has God not commanded you to do that? Has God not commanded you to be someone who gets into the word? Has God not commanded you to be somebody who's actively involved in Christian community? Has God not commanded you to step up and be a life group leader? Then do it. Because you're standing on the sidelines, it's like a, it's like a football game where 40,000 people gather to watch 22 people exercise. It, it doesn't do you any good. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. It's not helpful. It's not healthy. It's not constructive. It's not moving you anywhere. This is what Judges chapter 4 and 5 do. It condemns these 10 tribes. They had an opportunity. They knew what God wanted them to do. It condemns the city of Moroz. And all the while, Jael is the hero. Not because of her pedigree. Not because of her faith background. Not because she knew all the Bible answers. Because she actually did something. Here's the deal. I have like four or five more little illustrations and pictures and all that stuff. I'm just going to close it there. You go do with that what you feel like you, you need to do. That's between you and God. That's not for me to tell you what to do. Don't be a sideline Christian. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Let's pray. God, thanks for the opportunity to worship you today. Thanks for the opportunity to hear from you today. God, I pray for conviction and movement just as we um, sang to start our service God that you would move in us and now as we sing to close our service that you would move in us and move us toward others move us out of these seats into an active participating living faith where we are responding to what you've asked us to do and stepping out to do what it is you have called us to do. God, we pray that we would not be like those ten tribes who sat on the sidelines. We pray that we would not be like Morose who sat on the sidelines. We pray that we would be like Jael. Who took a risk. Who risked her very life. To free your people from a cruel oppressor. Teach us to be people that risk and sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom, that get up off our rear ends and do something in the body and for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name, God's people said.